when I was growing up, missionary was a term reserved for special Christians. The super elite, the really strong Christian believers, the Navy SEALs, if you will, of Christianity. And yet as I read my Bible, what I have come to understand is that the word missionary is not reserved for super special Christians. In fact, being a missionary, being on mission for Christ, is part of what we do when we're called to follow Jesus. Over the last few weeks, we have talked about who our neighbors truly are. And I hope that you, like me, have had your definition of neighbors expanded, maybe even in uncomfortable ways. But today, I want us to bring us back to something a little closer to home. Right now, I'm standing in my neighborhood, the place where my family and I have lived for the last 12 years. And as I stand here, I'm reminded that being a missionary doesn't always involve going to people that I don't know or halfway around the world. That being a missionary can start right here and right now. As I stand here today, I'm reminded that although the Great Commission may take us around the world, it may take you to places you never expected, that the Great Commission for you starts in your apartment complex, in your dorm room, or in your suburban neighborhood. The question most of us ask is, then how? How do I do that? How do I reach my neighbors with the gospel of Jesus? And I think the answer to that question is both simple and challenging. The answer is simply, open your door. Open your door to the neighborhood. Allow them in to who you are and what you believe. But also open your door to see the needs that are around us. The Great Commission may lead you all the way around the world. But it will start in your dorm room. It will start in your apartment complex. It will start in your suburban neighborhood. The Great Commission for you means not only the people in the actual houses that live around you, but also the people you come in contact with every day when you're shopping for groceries and you're putting gas in your car, when you're doing those things in life where you see the same people day after day. I believe that God is calling us to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with those people, to share His love with them. In the book of Acts, out of the 40 miracles that are done, only all but one of them is done outside the church. In the book of Acts, we see that the greatest movements of God are started by ordinary people talking to the people in and around their lives. The real power of God comes when the people of God begin to impact the people in their neighborhoods by living out the Great Commission in their lives. Will you join me in reaching our neighbors for Christ? So I I know that all of your grocery shopping is that dramatic and slow motion. Um, Really appreciate uh, Wade Hodges from Hodges Media, who has produced our videos for the last four weeks. Wade grew up in this church. John and Leslie's oldest son, and we are grateful for him for putting all that together and um, excited. Yeah, it's, it's clap worthy, right? So appreciate him working with us through that, including what you couldn't see in the video, uh, that one of swerving cars missing us as I'm standing in the middle of the road. And so that all got edited out. That was good. So uh, take your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Matthew, the book of Matthew. We're going to look um, at the end of the book of Matthew. In fact, it might be faster to find where we're going to be if you'll go to Mark and turn back one page, because we're going to be in the very last verses of the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 28. As we're looking at this, we're going to look at a very familiar passage of scripture, but I want to use it 
to kind of put a bookend on what we've been talking about over the last few weeks in our Neighborhood Watch series. And if you've been here with us over these last three weeks, I'm sure you remember this, but let me remind you of kind of where we've been over the last three weeks. We started week one um, three weeks ago talking about the fact that all human beings, all of us are created in the image of God, that we have what um, theologians call the imagio Dei, the image of God within us, which means we have dignity and that we must respect each and every human being and that all of us are capable of following God, that God wants us to be able to follow him. And so our goal is to take that gospel to them. The second week, we talked about the parable of the Good Samaritan, how it's situated in Scripture, and how it is a reminder to us that God says that our neighbor really isn't the question that we ought to be asking, who is our neighbor? The question we ought to be asking is, to whom can I be a neighbor? And that we are looking outwardly, trying to find people that we can help. Then last week, we kind of shifted to a little more practical, idea talking about our digital address, that way that we present ourselves and what we say online and how that impacts the gospel of Jesus Christ being proclaimed in our lives. Today, what I want to do is to bring all of that together, to think about all of those people in our lives that are our neighbors, the people that we are around all the time, the people that we see all the time, the people that we do see when we grocery shop, the people that we see when we go to the gym, people that we see when we go to school or to work or walking our neighborhood. And how do we interact with those people and what is our role or purpose with them? What does it look like to truly love our neighbor? What does it truly look like to be a good neighbor? And we're going to look at this very familiar passage of Scripture and remind us again of the calling on our lives and then focus it a little more specifically to the people in and around you. This short account in Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through the end of the book, verse 20, is a culmination of the entire book of Matthew. It's a combination of all of Matthew's central themes. Of how Matthew talks about the fact that the message of Christ moves God's people from being centered and almost exclusively Jewish people to a worldwide audience of all nations being part of the kingdom of God. Matthew has this emphasis throughout his gospel on discipleship and what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Matthew talks about the establishment of the church, the establishment of a new people of God. And Matthew talks about the abiding presence of Jesus. And as we read Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20, we're going to see again those promises, those realities played out here. So walk with me through that. Hopefully you've got your Bibles open. It'll be on the screen if not. But we're going to walk basically verse by verse through this and then talk about at the end how we put all of this together. Verse 16 says, I'm going to read it all, and then we'll come back and focus on specific parts. The eleven disciples traveled to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped, but some doubted. Jesus came near and said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always. To the end of the age. 
Now again, this is one of the most familiar passages of Scripture in the Bible. If you didn't even grow up in church, you may have heard about the Great Commission or heard about these words. It's a passage of Scripture that perhaps I have preached more than any other in my 12 and a half years here as your pastor. Because it's central to our understanding of the calling of God on our lives. But as we look at it and we kind of break it down, there are some things that we discover here that remind us of that calling in more specific ways. We start even at the beginning and it gives us a setting of what's happening. In verse 16 it says, the eleven disciples traveled to Galilee. By the way, that's the first time in the New Testament, the first time and only time in the Gospel of Matthew where the word eleven disciples is used, right? Why are there 11 disciples? Judas is no longer there, right? Judas betrayed Jesus. The word 11 there is interesting because of its placement in the original language would show that it was emphasizing 11, that they had not expanded their ranks, that their ranks had not shrunk anymore, that there were still 11 of them there ready to go. And it says that they are in Galilee, which is different from the other Gospels about where kind of the ministry is centralized. A part of that is because when he refers to Galilee earlier in the book, Matthew calls it Galilee of the Gentiles or of those that are non-Jewish people or people that are outside traditionally the understanding in the Old Testament of who are God's people. It says that he told them to go to a mountain. Now, it doesn't tell us the mountain that is there. There's been lots of speculation, lots of discussion about this. And I know some of you are, are like, like all that information. Some of you just kind of washes over you. But most scholars think that this is the same mountain where Jesus is giving the Great Commission is the same mountain where the transfiguration happened. Do you remember that story in the, in the New Testament? Jesus goes up on a mountain and he's got who with him? He's got Peter, James, and John, he's got his inner three, his inner circle. He stands up on the mountain, and while he's there, he is changed into something that they don't recognize. In fact, Peter, who's always first to speak, says, hey, man, we need to put some stuff up to protect ourselves from whatever's happening here. Right? Hey, can we put up some tents or something, Jesus? Do you need to protect? Like, I think we're seeing something we don't need to see. Like, I think we're in a place where we are not worthy of being here. I think we need to protect ourselves or something bad's going to happen to us. And Jesus is there and he has uh, Moses, Elijah show up in some way, some form. Jesus is transfigured into who he really is. And it's this description of who Jesus is. And the scholars that think that's the same mountain say that what it proves is that Jesus started his ministry really or in the midst of his ministry displayed to his disciples to his apostles this is who i really am and at the end of his ministry said and this is what i want you to do now this is interesting little phrase here that happens it says the 11 are there they go up to the mountain it's one jesus told them to get to and when they see him what does it say happens they worshiped that's kind of the the moment of the whole thing right the Sure, like, what else would you do? This is the guy that you saw die on a cross that was buried, and then now you're having a conversation with him. Like, something's different about this guy. And then there's this little phrase, but some doubted. Can I just be honest with you? That's always bothered me a little bit. Like, I like to think if I was there, doubt would not be part of the equation anymore. Amen? 
I mean, remember Thomas, like, let me, let me touch the side, let me touch the thing and the handprints. And like, I could understand, listen, I can understand him. Listen, we live in a world where we haven't seen. This is blessed are those who receive by faith and not by sight. We're part of that world. But I can imagine being a part of that world and somebody walking up to you, hey, Jesus is alive again. You're going, yeah, okay, whatever. I want to see it. Like for Thomas, I don't have any kind of issue there. But by this time, he had appeared to them all. This wasn't his first appearance. And so who doubted? That's one of the questions I want to ask. Who doubted? Peter, James, John? Like what's going on there? Well, it helps if you kind of understand what this word means. Because a better translation of that word is not the word doubted. Now that's what they put in there. And I, I don't know if anybody else in a different translation has a different word. But the word that is best translated there is not doubted, but is hesitated. And there's a difference in those two words. And the idea behind this word is that they were there, Jesus comes up, they see him, they want to worship him, but they're also like, now, what, so, so what does this mean? Like, we were pretty clear that we were going to take the throne with Jesus as our king. Jesus died, he's back in a form we've never seen before. We're not really sure what the future holds or what it means for my life. And so there was a little hesitation. Anybody here ever been in one of those moments? Maybe you're in church, maybe you're at home reading your Bible, maybe you're at a youth camp or um, a worship conference or you're somewhere, you're at a revival, and you can sense that something is different about that particular moment, about that particular time, and you know that it is God calling you to himself. God revealing something to you that you're closer than you've been before. And in that moment, you are ready to go, but you also have this feeling inside of you, but I'm not sure what that would mean. Anybody ever been there? Like, and I'm not real sure, like, but is that, is that going to mean like, like, man, God, I want to give you everything I've got. God, I want to give you my life. Lord, Lord, I want to serve you 100%. But I just, you know, I'm a little concerned about what that means i got to give up or what I have to change or where I have to go. I've told this story before, but I, I was thinking about this when I was reading over this hesitation. And uh, when, when Susan and I were finishing seminary, um, you graduate seminary when you graduate other ones usually, like around May. And there's this... You know, when you get out of seminary, the kind of the hope is, the goal is that you would have a place to go minister. I was feel called to be a pastor, and so that was my goal and my hope. And May came, and nobody had contacted us. I had graduation robes. I had all my stuff filled, and nobody had called. You know, people talked to me, you're going to go and do a Ph.D.? I was like, man, I am done with school. I'm, I'm seven years after high school. I was done with school. Susan and I were ready to move on. We had nobody calling us. And I remember specifically in those moments praying for the Lord to reveal his way. And one of the things we said to him was this, Lord, this is what I remember. Was, I'll, say, I'll say I said this, but one of the things I prayed was, Lord, we will go wherever you want us to go, but we really don't want to go to West Tennessee. Because that's where Susan's dad was a pastor. That's where I'd grown up. We want to make our own name. You want to do our own thing, our own ministry, right? And so you know how you tell the Lord things and he laughs up there? And the the first call we got was from Twin Falls, Idaho. The second call we got was Clovis, New Mexico. That night I said, Lord, we'll go to West Tennessee, wherever you want us to go. 
we'll be fine. The next call we got was Ripley, Tennessee. That's where we ended up going. But I remember that, you know what I'm saying, like the conditions you sometimes put. And I think that what's happening here with these apostles, with these disciples, the 11, is they're coming to worship the Lord, but they're like, but we're not real sure what that means. What does that look like going forward? And can I tell you something? If he would have told them exactly what was going to happen to them through the book of Acts, I'm not sure that they would have stayed. So Jesus says to them, I love this. Jesus, first of all, it says in verse 18, this is a little note that may not seem significant, but it is. Jesus came near. There's only a couple of times in the entire scripture, in the entire New Testament, it says Jesus came. Every time else someone comes to Jesus, someone approaches Jesus. But in this instance, to alleviate fears, alleviate hesitation, to help them to get where they needed to go, Jesus comes to them and says to them, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And the point that he is making in this passage is this. Is that because of the resurrection from the dead, I have full power now. What's happening here is he is saying, now, just before this passage, just before that starts with the 11 disciples traveled to Galilee, just before that, um, Matthew has told us about the conspiracy that was out there where the guards got bribed. Normally, if the guards had left the tomb and they left and the Jewish, the body inside was gone, the guards would have been killed. But the Jewish leader said, we will bribe you, give you some money to tell a different story. Matthew is not telling that as if it's true. In fact, he is saying it is bunk. It is not true at all. It is not right. It is fake news that Jesus did rise from the dead. And so the point of all of this right before this passage is Jesus is alive. And so when we get here and he says that all authority has been given to me, he is reminding the reader about the resurrection that happened. Now, we are seven weeks from Easter today. I mean, I look forward to Easter every year, amen? Mainly because it's getting warmer. That's not the main reason. The main reason is because we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. But if we as a church celebrate and remember the resurrection of Jesus one time a year, we are failing 51 other weeks. It is the foundation of our faith. It is the heart of the good news. It is the proof of the deity of Jesus. It is the power and presence of God made available to us as followers of his. It is the key to eternal life and the new community that has been created on earth. It is the springboard for mission to take us into the world. And what he's saying here is, the point Jesus is making is that I now have the fullest possible authority. In Matthew chapter 7, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, just a few chapters before this, in another moment when he's announcing his ministry on a mountain, in 729 it says that the people were amazed at his teaching. I am so looking forward to this summer because we're going to break down the Sermon on the Mount for the whole summer. That's what we're going to talk about. And at the end of it, as I've been looking at it, the teachings are amazing. And the people said they were blown away. They were amazed by his teaching because he taught as one who had authority. Now this is Jesus talking. 
talking to the eleven that had witnessed that teaching for three and a half years. It's Jesus talking to the eleven that had seen him walk on water, seen him raise people from the dead, see him heal people by spitting in some mud and rubbing it on their eyes, that had seen him raise from the dead. And he says to them, because of that last thing, because I've risen from the grave, if you thought I had authority before, you ain't seen nothing yet. That because of the resurrection, I have every bit of authority. That whatever self-imposed limitations occurred from the incarnation of coming in human flesh are gone. And what we might expect is that when he says that, when he says the full authority of God is in me, the full authority of the universe is within me, that what we might expect is to hear him say, and this is how I'm going to use that authority. Here are the ways that I'm going to bring about peace. Here are the ways that I'm going to end wars. Here are the ways that I'm going to destroy the enemy. Here are the ways. But instead, he talks about how his authority is good for us. Think about that. The next word in the Greek language is therefore. Because he has all the authority in the world. Then we are to go and make disciples. This is what he's telling you and here's what he's telling me. I want you to listen. If you haven't, if you've kind of zoned out for a minute, I want you to listen to this. He is saying that when you go out in his name to proclaim the goodness of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you are carrying his authority with you, which is all the authority in the universe. And he will protect you, and he will guide you, and he will give you words to say when you go under his authority for his mission. And there are a lot of us in this room that live day-to-day lives where we do not feel the power and the impact of God on our lives. And part of the reason for that is we are not going out doing what he has called us to do under the authority that he has given us to do it. We have set our own agenda and our own schedules and our own goals and our own ideas and our own places instead of doing what God has called us to do. And when he says, when you go out, this is what I want you to do. There is, in this entire Great Commission, there is one verb that is the main verb, and it is make disciples, followers, learners, students. In that day and time, a disciple was someone that would follow after a teacher, follow after a master, that would learn everything the master taught and then do everything the master told them to do. And he says, my goal, my purpose, my reason for you to exist in this world is under my authority to go out and to make disciples. Not to make money, not to make houses, not to have a good family, not to have a good car and a good career and to get all that stuff settled. That may happen, but my purpose for you, my goal for you, my desire for you, the number one priority of your life is to glorify me by making disciples. And then he gives some qualifiers on that. He says, of all peoples. Now your translation and mine says, of all nations. But sometimes when we think of nations, we think of geopolitical things like the United States of America, or we think about um, the, a country in Africa like Egypt and that political thing, or the, um, France or Brazil. And that's not really what this word means here. What this word means of every group of people, unique peoples in the world. 
He says, my goal is for you to make disciples of all of them. And he gives us the two ways that that happens. He says, you do that by baptizing them in the name of Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That means that you tell them about the good news of Jesus. They accept it and are saved. And then they come to a place where they follow in obedience of baptism. And then the second thing is teaching them to obey everything I've taught you. And then he leaves with a promise. He says, and no, I'm with you to the end of the age. Not only and I'm sending you out under my authority, I am sending you out with my presence. Now we know from the New Testament that that comes primarily through the Holy Spirit indwelling us and being with us. But he is with us, watching over us, interceding for us with the Father even now. There are a few things we learn about the Great Commission just looking at it in-depthly like that. The first thing that we learn, that this mission of God on our lives to go into the world and tell others about him comes, first of all, as a result of meeting him. It's a response to us understanding what Christ has done for us. It's a response to a full understanding of what Christ has done in saving our souls. Secondly, the Great Commission springs from worship that we have when we acknowledge the greatness and the goodness of God. That it flows out of a life that is worshiping Him. Thirdly, it is simply an act of obedience. This is not a choice that we can make about whether or not this is part of our plan to follow Jesus. If you are following Jesus, you will be a part of the Great Commission. I'm going to say that again. If you are a follower of Jesus, you will be a part of the Great Commission. And to not be a part of that is an act of disobedience. To sit on the sidelines is an act of disobedience. And here's what's important about that. It's not just an act of disobedience to a generalized command that comes somewhere in the teachings of Jesus. That is being disobedient to the very command that Jesus gave at the end of his of his time here on earth. As he was getting ready to ascend back to the Father, you're saying, no thanks, Jesus, on that most important thing you said. The Great Commission is always focused outwardly. It's not something we talk about in reach. This is something outside of here. And then for the purposes of our series, the Great Commission is how we love our neighbor. And that's the point we've been talking about over the last four weeks. You cannot say that you adequately love your neighbor if sharing Christ with them is not part of that love. If you have someone in your life that you know is not a follower of Jesus Christ and you're friends with them or you're acquaintance with them and you say, man, I love that guy, but you haven't shared Christ with them, then you can't use the word love in the biblical sense. Because the ultimate way that we show our love for our neighbor is to tell them about the salvation that comes through Jesus. Now, this passage of Scripture is the passage that has been vitally important for the cause of world missions. And listen, if you've been around at all, you know my heart beats for world missions. We send a trip to Brazil every year. We're sending a trip to Colorado for the third year in a row. We believe in world missions, impacting the nations, impacting our nation, not just here, but abroad. One person said about, one scholar said about this particular passage of Scripture, no part of the Bible has done more to give Christians the vision of a worldwide church than the Great Commission. 
It has sent them to the nations bearing the message of salvation through Christ with which are linked the responsibility and privilege of obeying his words. No passage of scripture, it says, has been more important for a vision for reaching the nations than this. But there's one phrase in this great commission that reminds us that it's not just about going around the world. Because the reality is, in this room, there may be someone, and there may be, it may be you, that is called to go around the world or across the nation to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And my prayer is, if that is you, that you would be willing and able and responsive to the call that put, God has put on your life to do exactly that. But for most of us in this room, that is not the case. And so the question becomes, how do we fulfill the Great Commission if we're not going to the ends of the earth? And it's tucked right at the beginning of the command of Jesus. The actual phrasing of the way it is, and I've added this in parentheses because it's not what it says in your in my translation of the Bible, is as you go. What that means is wherever you are, around the people that you see, in the neighborhood in which you live, at the grocery store in which you shop, at the ballpark where you play, you are to be the witnesses for Christ. When I got to Publix the other day with Wade and we were filming that um, that little video, we got some looks, as you can imagine, walking around with a guy scoping around me while I'm walking down the cereal aisle. Um, I don't normally throw the uh, uh, frozen sausage and biscuits that delicately onto the the uh, cash register either but what's interesting is they know me in Publix because I shop at Publix because it is literally on the way out from my house to go anywhere else I'm going to go if I'm going anywhere in this area I got to go past Publix and there are lots of times we just need a little something there or here and Susan takes them hey we need that or the kids will put it on Alexa and we'll do that and we'll I'll stop and get it and so I know those people and I see those people, and I'm around those people a lot. And when I came in, the, the lady that checked me out, who's checked me out multiple times, she goes, what is the deal with the camera? Because we know each other. It opened up an opportunity for me to tell them about, you know, pastoring a church and um, being able to talk about that. But you have people, too, in your life that you see all the time, that you know all the time. And I don't know whether you know their spiritual condition or not. But those are our neighbors and those are the people that we are first called to enact the Great Commission with in our lives. I told you about this a couple of weeks now, but I want to highly commend to you this little journal called Love Your Neighbor Above, or the Love Your Neighbor Journal. It's on the way out. We've got more copies of it if you haven't gotten a copy. If you've gotten it and you just threw it in your backseat of your car with your Bible and you picked it up when it came to church, you're like, oh, not worry about that. Listen. It does a great job of asking some very pointed questions for you to first discover whether or not you even know who your neighbors are, but secondly, to identify those people in your life that you need to be praying for and thinking about sharing the gospel of Jesus with them. We like to hear the Great Commission and think globally, and I love to do that. I, I, I love taking offerings for international missions. I love supporting our international missionaries. I love praying for them. I love supporting and praying for and talking to the guys that are planting churches in and around this country with Chris Phillips and Zach Drake. 
having those conversations, hearing about frontline kind of work and evangelism. But what you're doing in your street on a daily basis and in the places that you go is just as important as what Chris Phillips is doing in planning a church in Denver, Colorado. And the question is, will you be faithful to the calling of God on your life there? Three things that I want you to do and take all of this information from this series, three things that I think can help you to fulfill the Great Commission in your place. If you're writing down stuff, write these three things down. First of all, and I said this in the video, open your door. And I mean that literally and symbolically. Literally, I mean that way. Maybe it's time for you to be hospitable in your neighborhood with people around you. Invite people in. Be the place where people can come hang out. Be the place where your neighbors know it's okay to come have a conversation. Open your door to see what people are willing to come. That, that may mean more symbolically just opening your life and making yourself available to be able to hear the needs of people. This weekend, for the first time, I watched the newest Mr. Rogers movie, The Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, and did not realize that it's really not a movie about Mr. Rogers. I don't know if you've seen the movie or not. It's really not a movie about Mr. Rogers. It's a movie about a journalist who wrote a piece about Mr. Rogers. What I found interesting about this, many of you know the story of Mr. Rogers' story, that he was a he was a Presbyterian minister and actually got um, certified, ordained to be a minister on television, and he always saw his program as a ministry. Well, the guy that, that the story is about really is this journalist who had a life that was really messed up. He'd been an investigative journalist, and in the investigative journalist world, he had torn down some people. He'd gone and interviewed people, they gave him lots of information, and then his pieces had torn down people. And it's based on a true story, you know, in the fiction, and they, they meld some stuff together and they make up parts of it, but it's the, the basis of this movie is a true story. And that, our, that guy was given his next assignment to go interview Fred Rogers. In the previews even shows this, his wife says to him, don't ruin my childhood. And the lady's telling him, he says, well, why did you give me him? Why did you give me some children's television guy? And she said, because nobody else would talk to you. And during the midst of the movie, you wonder, well, Mr. Rogers said, yeah, to anybody. During the midst of the movie, they reveal that Mr. Rogers' handler, agent, whatever he was, made him read every piece the guy had ever written and said, is this the guy you want doing the profile? And Mr. Rogers said, this is exactly the guy I want. The movie is about how this journalist's life was completely transformed because he interviewed Fred Rogers. He let somebody in that nobody else would. One of the things that I thought about as I'm watching that is, how many people in my sphere of influence are there that are just waiting for me to open the door and let them in. And that would be the catalyst that would begin the life change that God would do in their lives. Open your door. Second thing is be intentional. Initiate conversations. Go outside. It's not going to be winter forever here. It hadn't really been a whole lot of winter anyways. Go outside, go to the park, go walk. But don't walk just for health and put your head down and your hoodie on and I'm not talking to anybody, I'm just walking. Or to go to the park and sit on a bench and not interact. Interact with people in and around you. 
There's a book, I'm going to tell you the, the name of the book in a minute, but there's a book that gives some practical understandings of how to do this. And this, this guy's a guy that's from the South that is now living in another part of the country. And he said what he did and what he realized is that everybody in his neighborhood came home and if they played outside or they did anything outside, it was always out back. And so he said, I would grill a couple of times a week. And he said, I noticed I'd be cool. We'd be back there grilling and you could smell other things in the neighborhood, but you never saw anybody grilling. So he moved his grill to the front yard. He said, now, yes, it did look like the most redneck thing you can imagine of a guy from the South moving his grill to the front yard. He said, but do you know the number of conversations I've had because I'm grilling in the front yard? I read a study recently that said that Americans today, even though we live closer together than we ever have, interact with people less than we ever have that live around us. And that the place where people play and work and act has moved from the front yard to the backyard. So maybe you move your grill out front this grilling season or you play in the front yard instead of the back and you interact with people as they come. Be intentional. Think about it. Speak well when you're in places like Publix, like Kroger, like restaurants around. Speak well of church and life. Now let me just say, if you are the grumpiest person they have ever met, don't talk about our church. If you are complaining about everything that is happening, talk about it. No, I'm, I'm not going to say that. I was going to tell you to talk about another church. Don't do that. Talk, just don't talk about ours. Okay? Right? Like, you've been around that, like, well, man, they're they not very happy today. Oh, you go to First Baptist? Okay, we'll file that away. If your life is reflecting the love of Christ, then speak well of your church, of your Savior, and your life. And the last thing, and then we'll be done. Schedule hospitality. Hospitality is one of the most um, treasured traits in the Bible. And for us, it sounds... Dated almost. But schedule opportunities to impact the people around you with kindness and goodness. In our life, in my life, if it doesn't get scheduled, it doesn't happen. And I could talk about, hey, someday we're going to do that. Maybe you get together with some neighbors and say, maybe some people you know that you're already followers of Christ, maybe part of this church, maybe not part of this church, and say, hey, how can we work together to impact this little area that God has placed us in, in our neighborhood? If this is something that interests you, I want to tell you about two books. And I, I don't always give kind of recommendations, but I want to tell you about these two books. And I don't, I don't know that you can see those real well, but you can write them down if you, if, if you can. The first is about a lady called Rosaria Butterfield, and the, the name of the book is The Gospel Comes with a House Key. It's much more of a kind of a theological perspective, but just to tell you her story, it's almost similar to the journalist and Mr. Rogers. Rosaria Butterfield was a journalist and somebody that was working her way through school, and as she was doing that, um, she had to interview a pastor about what it was like to be a pastor of a world religion that she didn't agree with, which was Christianity. She was a practicing homosexual and was anti-Christianity completely. And she says that the first time she went, she was mad, she was angry, she didn't want anything. She was going to get in, get the interview. Eventually, over time, that pastor had her in his home week after week after week after week, began to have Bible study with her, and she became a follower of Jesus Christ and is now her and her husband are leading a church. 
And it's about how hospitality and someone opening their door changed her life. The second one is what I mentioned earlier about the guys that moved the grill in the front yard. It's the simplest way to change the world. It is much more practical, and it gives you example after example of ways that you can impact your neighborhood and the people around you with the gospel of Jesus Christ. One of the things that I love about our church is if you look at our church, we are a multi-generational church. We have people that are, we literally have Um, babies overflowing and preschoolers downstairs right now. We have children, we have youth, we have young adults, we have middle-aged adults, we have senior adults that don't call themselves senior adults yet, and then we have um, senior adults. We run the gamut. What I also love about our church is we are not only a multi-generational church, we're a multi-area church. We have people that live all over this area. And when I think about the potential of our church impacting neighborhoods in Greenbrier and Springfield and Goodlettsville and Hendersonville and Gallatin and Mount Juliet and Madison, Jolton, it is an awesome opportunity God has given us to reach this area if we will be faithful to his call. Let's pray together.